Welcome to Nationwide Market Insights for July 6th, 2022. The quarterly Nationwide Market Insights report for Q3 2022 is now available, featuring our commentary and insight into the economy and financial markets. In today's podcast, Nationwide's Deputy Chief Economist, Brian Jordan, will walk us through the NMI quarterly report, highlighting key pages and providing additional perspective. To view or download the report while you listen to this podcast, you can visit nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. So Brian, thanks for joining us today in this podcast. Let's start off with the uh, U.S. equity markets. I see that there are several pages in this report that focus on the current bear market, starting with page six. What should our audience take away from these pages? Yes, there are a few big themes uh, associated with the bear market in U.S. equities in the first half of 2022. The first one on page six uh, that we discuss is the accelerated nature of this cycle. We've talked in previous quarters uh, about the accelerated nature of this business cycle. Uh, Job growth recovered more rapidly than it has in the prior couple of cycles. Inflation certainly came back much more quickly than it has in prior cycles. And the Fed started raising interest rates more quickly than it has in prior cycles. The equity market has also been accelerated in a way here. We saw a big decline, of course, in domestic stock prices in the first half of this year. And even if we are going into a recession, that's still very much in question, and we'll get to that later on in the discussion. But even if we are going into a recession, the decline in equity so far this year has been much more pronounced than is typical in pre-recessionary period. So here on page six, we're looking at declines in the S&P 500 from cycle peaks to recessions. And you can see that the decline this year and from the peak in early January to the end of the second quarter, the S&P was down by 21.1%, would stand as the biggest decline in a pre-recession period on record. The S&P 500 goes back to the 1920s. You can see in every cycle prior to this one, the declines have been more muted before recessions. The only one that comes close was the decline uh, from early 2000 to early 2001. Before that 2001 recession, the S&P was down by a little less than 19% at that time. But on average, looking across the entire history going back to the 1920s, the index has been down by an average of 7.6% in the pre-recessionary period. So this this goes to say that a lot of bad news has already been priced in. We'll move from there on to um, to page seven. Again, it's still very much in question whether we're going into a recession or not. And again, we'll get to that later in the discussion. When the S&P goes into a bear market without a recession, the decline tends to be much more shallow and much shorter lived. So we've got two charts here. On the left-hand side, we show changes in the S&P 500 by bear market. On the right-hand side, the length of S&P 500 bear markets. The blue bars on both charts represent the non-recessionary bear markets. In the history of the S&P 500, again, going back to the 1920s, we've had 13 bear markets. Three of those 
There was one in 1961 to 1962, one in 1966, then a very famous one in 1987. Three of those did not coincide with an economic contraction. And those declines were much more mild and much shorter lived. So you can see on the, the left-hand side, the average decline in the S&P during a non-recessionary bear market was 27.9%. The average decline during a recessionary bear market, the bear market that coincided with a contraction in the economy, was 44%. Very similar story in terms of length. Those bear markets that coincided with recessions lasted for more than two years on, on average. Those that did not coincide with recessions, that took place wholly within economic expansions, only lasted for six months on average. So if this economy continues to grow, and so far it is still growing, at least underlying demand is, is still growing, it's likely that the decline and the length of this decline will be limited. We'll turn from there to page eight and one more chart to highlight in the equity market section. Here we're looking at changes in the S&P 500 after hitting certain thresholds within bear markets. What happens to the S&P one year after it falls 5% from its high at the beginning of a bear market? What happens after it's fallen 10% from the peak at the beginning of a bear market, 15%? What happens after it hits the bear market threshold, that minus 20% threshold? within a bear market, and then 25% and 30%. And you can see that on average, the index is up one year after hitting the bear market threshold. After hitting that minus 20% mark that marks a bear market, the index is up by 7.2% over the course of the next year. After it falls by 25%, it's up over 14% over the course of the next year. Now, this doesn't play out every time. Very famously, in the 2007 to 2009 bear market, uh, a long and deep bear market, of course, after we hit the 20% threshold, over the course of the next year, the S&P fell by another 29%, a little bit over 29%. So there have been cases where, the, of course, the market has continued to decline. But on average, and this includes both recessionary bear markets and non-recessionary bear markets, on average, after hitting this mark, the mark we hit in the second quarter, the 20% threshold, the index is up over the course of the next year. Yeah, Brian, I think our audience is going to really appreciate the historical perspective that your report shows here. And looking at today, I know we've seen a lot of major steps that the Fed has taken to help get inflation in check. And on page 13, it shows the impact of the Fed's actions in the recent past. What can you tell us about page 13 where it says yields jump? So here we're showing on, on page 13 the real influence of monetary policy. So as we include in every quarter's uh, deck, we've got a chart here looking at the 10-year Treasury yield and the two-year Treasury yield, benchmarks at the longer and shorter end of the Treasury yield curve. And you can see kind of the gradual move up in yields during the Fed's 2015 to 2018 tightening cycle. You can see the sharp decline in yields during the Fed's 2019-2020 easing cycle, especially associated with the, with the sharp drop in 2020 in terms of the Fed funds target. 
And then now the sharp increases, uh, especially over the course of the last quarter, as the Fed has started to raise rates more aggressively, including a 75 basis point rate hike in June, the, the biggest rate increase from the Fed since 1994. So we're really showing the influence of Fed policy here. Yes, GDP influences longer term treasury yields, and so mortgage rates and every other rate tied to the treasury yield curve. Yes, the inflation rate influences the treasury yield curve. Yes, debt levels can influence longer term treasury yields. But the overwhelming influence comes from Fed policy. When the Fed is raising rates, especially raising rates aggressively, longer term yields are going to rise as well. Now, as we show on page 14, however, what we've seen so far in this cycle is above and beyond what we typically would expect given what the Fed has done to date um, so far in 2022. Here you can see how the two-year yield and the 10-year yield have risen across prior Fed tightening cycles. And then on the far right-hand side, we can see how they've risen in this cycle. And if we focus on the blue bar here, the 10-year Treasury yield, we can see based on monthly data that the increase so far in this cycle, still relatively early in, in this cycle, the Fed just began raising rates in March of this year. The increase in the 10-year Treasury yield so far in this cycle exceeds the increases across the entireties of the prior three cycles. So across the entirety of the 2015 to 2018 cycle, the 04 to 06 cycle, and the 99 to 2000 cycle, the 10-year Treasury yield did not rise as much as it has already risen to this point in the current cycle. In other words, just like a lot of bad news is already priced into the equity market, a lot of Fed tightening is already priced in to the Treasury market. And if we move to page 15, we can see that historically, the 10-year Treasury yield moves at a little bit less than half the pace of the Fed funds target during Fed tightening cycles. Very roughly, for every 1%, one percentage point, that the Fed lifts its benchmark overnight federal funds target rate, the 10-year Treasury yield has moved by approximately 45 basis points, 0.45%, a little bit less than half the pace. It's moved much more than that so far in this cycle relative to, to Fed tightening. And that would suggest, again, there's a lot of Fed tightening already priced in. And perhaps going forward, we won't see the same types of increases even if the Fed continues to raise interest rates, benchmark interest rates, we won't see the same types of increases at the longer end of the Treasury curve. And so the, the same types of increases for mortgage rates, for example, as we've seen to date in this cycle. Like you said, the Fed rate hikes have definitely had an impact on interest rates. And then through those impacts on the interest rates, they've also impacted the overall economy. Now, starting on page 23 in the second half of this report, the NMI focuses on the U.S. economy. And there's been some discussion recently about the outlook of our economy, which at times has included the word recession. Should we be concerned about a possible recession coming soon? Or what are some of the key items that our readers will learn from this report? Yes, uh, we should be concerned that a recession may be coming. We've, uh, As we've detailed in prior editions, of nationwide market insights, the Fed doesn't have a great track record when it comes to producing soft landings. Over the course of the last eight monetary tightening cycles, six led directly 
into recessions. We had two soft landings over that time span, going back to the early 1970s and the mid-1980s and mid-1990s. The Fed was able to produce soft landings, but more often than not, Fed tightening eventually leads into contractions, into recessions. However, as we show on page 27, we shouldn't expect such a scenario to be imminent. It takes time before Fed tightening has its full effect on the economy. And of course, when the Fed is raising interest rates, the economy has a lot of underlying momentum. That's a big reason why the Fed raises rates in the first place. The labor market is strong. The unemployment rate is low. The underlying economic growth rate is healthy. Um, and so inflation risks are, are rising. And so there's a momentum that takes time to reverse. And so on average, even if we exclude the soft landings, even if we take out the mid-1980s and mid-1990s, even if we exclude those periods, we still see that it's taken an average of nearly three years between the beginning of a Fed rate hike cycle and the beginning of a recession. The rate hike cycle began this time in March of 2022. If we have a trend lag between the beginning and um, and the beginning of the next recession, it's not going to be months. It's not even going to be quarters, but it's going to be measured in years before the next outright downturn. And we should also mention that there is the scope for the Fed, even though it doesn't have a great track record here. There is the scope for the Fed to achieve a soft landing here, given the potential for the exogenous shock that has driven the exogenous shocks that have driven the inflation rate higher have been largely responsible or significantly responsible for driving the inflation rate higher. Given the scope for those shocks to dissipate, there is the potential that we could have a soft landing in this cycle too. But we'll, we'll get to that a, little, a bit later in the discussion. Well, I'm glad you brought up inflation because that definitely is a hot topic now for so many people in our country and around the world. You know, the Fed is tightening monetary policy in large part because of the spike in inflation. What does this report say or focus on in terms of inflation? So on page 29, we take a look at the yearly changes in the consumer price index. We can put the current spike in the CPI into context. We've got the CPI here going back to 1940. So we have 80 years of data here. And what this shows, number one, is this is the highest inflation rate we've had since the early 1980s. As we record this, the inflation rate stands at 8.6%. We haven't seen an inflation rate that high since the early 1980s. But what it also shows is that when we have these spikes along the line of the one we've had over the course of the last year, they generally give way to sharp declines as well. We don't see any plateaus here. We don't see the inflation rate spiking and then holding at a high level for an extended period. What we see is when the inflation rate spikes, eventually it gives way to a sharp decline because typically those spikes uh, are, are driven by exogenous shocks, non-underlying economically determined shocks. So, for example, we can go back to the 1970s and early 1980s. Now, during that time, we did have an underlying rise in the inflation rate as well. The Fed was pursuing a very aggressive, supportive, accommodative monetary policy in the early late 1960s and early 1970s. And we had a gradual rise in the underlying inflation rate during that period as a result. 
But on top of that underlying rise, we also had two major spikes in the early to mid 1970s and again in the in, in the late 1970s and early 1980s. Um, inflation was actually quite low uh, prior to the Arab oil embargo in 1973, at least prior to 19. 19- 73 it was. We had an inflation rate that was 3.4% at the end of 1972. By the end of 1974, it spiked up to 12.3%, but then it moved down rapidly as well. This is often forgotten in the story of uh, the high inflation 1970s, but it fell below 5%, to below 5% by the end of 1976. Then we had another oil price shock in the late 1970s, we moved up to over 14%, but then moved down rapidly in the early 1980s, coming down below um, 4% by the end of 1982. And you can see the same thing in the spikes driven by World War II, the spike driven by the outset of the Korean War in the early 1950s. Sharp increases tend to give way to sharp declines. Uh, Now, we don't know where this increase will end. We're at 8.6% today. Perhaps we'll see that inflection at 9%, perhaps at 10%, perhaps higher than that. I think uh, based on some charts we'll show in just a moment, there's reason to believe that we're we're very close to to that turning point here in the months ahead. Um, But when it does turn, history tells us that it will turn rapidly. So we will turn from there to to page 30, and here we talk about some of the underlying fundamentals that would suggest some reason for optimism on inflation. Um, The news on inflation has been almost universally bad thus far in 2022. Food prices rising aggressively, energy prices rising aggressively, new all-time highs in terms of regular gasoline prices, the headline inflation rate again hitting its highest level in over four decades. But the underlying fundamentals do suggest that a turn may be coming before long. So here we look at a couple of these fundamental factors. On the left-hand side, uh, we show the number of commodities reported to be in short supply in the ISM manufacturing survey. These are uh, reports um, coming directly from purchasing managers. In the middle of last year, this group said that there were 36 commodities uh, that were in short supply. So no surprise prices were were spiking at that time and continue to spike into the early stages of 2022. In the most recent report uh, for June, um, those same purchasing managers said that only 13 commodities were in short supply. And they also mentioned that there were eight commodities, in fact, that were falling in price last month. And so we're beginning to see some early hints of a turn here. Commodity availability is improving and commodity prices are declining as a result. On the right-hand side, we're showing the changes in business inventories, year-over-year changes in business inventories. And you can see the line has been straight up recently. Inventories are rising by nearly 17% on a year-over-year basis. That's the fastest rate of inventory growth since the mid-1970s. Inventory increases tend to lead to price cuts. Um, And we've seen some hints of that recently with announcements from Target and Walmart and The Gap and other retailers. This would suggest as well um, that supply chains have have been healing. Uh, Inventories uh, were very tight in uh, late 2020 and 2021. Now they have been rebuilt. We've gone through a great restocking, a great rebuilding. That rebuilding, especially in the context of a shift in demand, 
from spending on goods to spending on services should mean more disinflation going forward. We haven't seen it yet in the consumer price index and in other headline inflation metrics, but these underlying fundamentals are suggesting that it is coming. Some turn is coming in the inflation rate before long. That's very encouraging to hear. I know the economic indicators you're showing now can help illustrate where our economy is heading from here. On page 31, you feature the yield curve. What can we learn from monitoring the yield curve? So the yield curve is the most prescient leading indicator. We've heard a lot in recent months about leading indicators pointing downward for the U.S. economy. The index of leading economic indicators has declined for three consecutive months. Um, That is an ominous sign for the pace of economic growth going forward. But the most prescient of these indicators, the yield curve, is still very much pointing upward. So here you see the the, the spread between the 10-year Treasury yield and the federal funds target. And you can see that it's not only still pointed upward, it's actually above its long-term average. Historically, this spread has averaged right around 1.1%. It's above that long-term average currently. You can also see very importantly on the chart on page 31 that in front of every recession in modern history, and the recessions are marked here by the shaded areas on the page, in front of every recession in modern history, the yield curve has inverted. The short-term interest rate, the federal funds target, that Fed benchmark interest rate has moved up ahead of the 10-year Treasury yield. We're still not close to that. Now, as the Fed continues to raise short-term interest rates, the yield curve is going to continue to flatten. This blue line is going to continue to decline. And eventually, we may see it go, go negative, as it has in prior cycles. Even if that happens, however, um, historically, the lag between the inversion in this spread and the outset of a recession has been roughly one and a half years. So if and when that happens, that doesn't mean that a recession is imminent. It means that we're on recession watch uh, for the next one to two years. And again, we're still not close to that point just yet. If we look from there to turn from there to page 32, we see very much the same story. Here we're looking at the trough in the spread between the 10-year Treasury and the federal funds target prior to recessions. And we're showing that in every recession in modern history, we have had a negative number, a negative reading in that in that spread between the 10-year Treasury and the Fed funds target. Currently, we're not close to being negative. Uh, we're still comfortably in positive territory. So we've had a number of indicators, a number of leading indicators, like building permits, consumer expectations, new orders for, 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 for manufacture, manufactured products, uh, stock prices themselves, the stock market itself is a leading indicator. We've had a number of leading indicators that have turned negative so far in 2022. But the most important of these indicators, the most prescient of these indicators is still pointing upward. And again, this would suggest that even as Fed tightening is increasing the risks of an eventual downturn, we're still not on the doorstep of such a downturn just yet. That's good to see. I know that on page 33, it does show the business cycle of moving from expansion into recession and then back to expansion again. Can you tell us more about where our economy is right now and then how we got here 
And then what's the outlook for the year ahead? So this is where um, we really wrap up our views on the economy, where we are in the business cycle on this business cycle chart on page 33. And what we can see here is that even though this has been a most unusual cycle, driven very much by the COVID recession and the response to the COVID recession in 2020, the lockdowns in 2020 that fueled a massive decline in real GDP, the end of the lockdowns that fueled a massive bounce back in real GDP, uh, the dramatic declines in employment and the sharp rise in the unemployment rate in 2020, and then the rapid recovery in the labor market since then. This has been a most unusual cycle in so many ways. And I mentioned at the outset, it's been an accelerated cycle um, in so many ways. And we're seeing that in the equity market now. But underneath the surface, we see that the same mechanism that has always driven the business cycle is still very much intact here. So we had a recession in 2020. It was a very brief recession. Um, We had a negative feedback loop very briefly. Employment fell, incomes fell, spending was down. Um, inflation, The inflation rate fell as well. And of course, the Fed uh, pushed short-term interest rates all the way down to zero. We had um, declines in longer-term treasury yields to go along with Fed easing. And then that steepening of the yield curve, that decline in interest rates um, helped to fuel a recovery. Now, of course, the recovery itself and the the magnitude of the recovery was very much a function of the lockdowns and the post-lockdown bounce back. But it was very much abetted by very supportive monetary policy. And so we didn't just have a, a, a pickup in jobs. We had a robust recovery in jobs. And we had a robust bounce back in incomes. We had a robust bounce back in spending. And we've had an accelerated pickup in the inflation rate. And so we've seen that this cycle has played out just as every other cycle in history has. Um, the economy recovers, the employment uh, employment recovers, we get a positive feedback loop as the labor market recovers. So we get income growth, we get spending growth, um, and eventually the economy outstrips its ability to grow and we have higher inflation. Now we have higher inflation for many reasons, but there are some underlying drivers at work as well. And because we have higher inflation, Interest rates have moved higher. The Fed has tightened policy. Longer-term interest rates have moved up. And so you can see we've got the we are here dot towards the end of the expansionary phase of the cycle. But again, we know that we can be in this area for quite some time. The Fed started raising short-term interest rates in the last cycle in 2015. We didn't go into recession in 2020. And of course, that recession was very much driven by COVID. If it hadn't been for the pandemic, perhaps we wouldn't have gone into a downturn until 2021 or maybe even 2022. In the cycle prior to that, the Fed started raising short-term interest rates in 2004. We didn't go into a recession until late 2007, more than three years later. So it takes time. We can be in this, this final stage of the cycle for, for for quite some time. There will be some commentary inevitably in the months ahead. There already has been a great deal about the potential for the economy to already be in a recession. We don't know officially that we're in recession until well after the fact. There's already been some commentary, and this commentary will no doubt increase in the months ahead, that we are already in a recession here in mid-2022. 
real GDP fell in the first quarter. And based on the data we have on hand for the second quarter, it looks like there's a significant chance that real GDP contracted again in Q2. Many people believe that two consecutive quarters of declines in, in real GDP mark a recession. But in fact, recessions are determined by declines in the monthly indicators, the, the cyclical monthly indicators, like employment, like industrial production, uh, like personal income, like real spending. And those indicators are virtually all still pointed upward. That's not to say that they can't start to decline later this year, perhaps in 2023, given uh, what the Fed has done and what some other leading indicators are suggesting already. But at this point, they are still pointing upward. We're still, we're still not in a recession as we record this here in early July. And the yield curve would suggest we're still not on the doorstep of a recession. The risks are rising, and the more the Fed raises short-term interest rates, the more the yield curve compresses. As a result of that Fed tightening cycle, the more those risks will accumulate. But for now, we're still in an expansion, perhaps a slowing expansion, one in which the risks are rising, but are still not quite overwhelming. Well, Brian, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap it up there today. Thank you so much for the insightful commentary. I can tell a lot of work went into the production of the Q3 NMI. And for our audience, if you want to listen to this and view the NMI as you hear Brian talk about it, you can visit nationwidefinancial.com forward slash economics. Brian, thanks again for joining us today. And I really appreciate everyone listening. That concludes today's podcast of Nationwide Market Insights. Provided by Nationwide Economics is general in nature and not intended as investment or economic advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any security or adopt any investment strategy. Additionally, it does not take into account any specific investment objectives, tax, or financial condition, or particular needs of any specific person. The economic and market forecasts reflect our opinion as of the date of this report and are subject to change without notice. These forecasts show a broad range of possible outcomes. Because they are subject to high levels of uncertainty, they will not reflect actual performance. We obtain certain information from sources deemed reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy, completeness, or fairness. Nationwide and the Nationwide N and Eagle are service marks of the Nationwide Mutual Insurance Company. Copyright 2022. Nationwide.